You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. Excited to open up the scriptures with you all together uh, as we gather for week two of a new sermon series coming out of Easter Sunday, one that's going to carry us right up to the beginning of the summer, a study of some of the most wondrous benedictions and doxologies in all of scripture. A.W. Pink says, a doxology is an ascription of praise, a benediction, a word of blessing. The one, a doxology, ascends from the heart of God to the saint The other, a benediction, a word of blessing, descends from God to the saint. With the doxology, we lift our hands, palms down, as we ascribe praise to the one who is worthy of all praise. With the benediction, we lift our hands, palms up, as we acknowledge in humble reliance and dependence that he must bestow blessing if we are to receive it. Two very big words, benediction and doxology, if I could help us out particularly if you weren't here last Sunday for the launch of this series by offering up the distinction, an example of each, a doxology being like what we see in Jude 25, where it says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. To God be the glory. That's a doxology. A benediction being... Like what we looked at last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul's pronouncing that word of blessing. The church in Corinth is receiving it, palms up. Yes and amen, Paul. We want that for our lives. Christian life, it, it's nothing less than the beautiful both and of, of hands lifted in heart-filled praise and humble dependence. So that the hope of this sermon series is that we might uh, more deeply marvel at who God is and might all the more declare the praises of him who is worthy of all praise. And two, that we might more deeply understand and enjoy the blessings that this praiseworthy God bestows upon his people, upon the church. Palms up and palms down. I hope that imagery sticks with with us all as we work our way through this series over the course of the next couple months. And so with that said, If you have a Bible, go ahead and invite you to open up to Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. That's where we'll camp out this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to use that Bible. Feel free to take that Bible home with you if you don't own a copy of the Bible. We'd be excited to know that you're exploring the scriptures on your own time. Let me go ahead and, and pray for us that the Lord would bless our time in the scriptures this morning. God, if I'm honest, in my prayer life, I far too quickly run to words of supplication, of request, of need. I don't slow down as often as I ought to ascribe praise to you who is worthy of all praise. So thank you for the opportunity this morning to slow down and to sit with a passage of Scripture that recognizes just how good and gracious and glorious you really are. 
As I mentioned last week, we cannot look at a benediction, a word of blessing, without recognizing that you are praiseworthy. And we cannot look at a doxology, as we'll see this morning, without recognizing the blessings that you, our great God, bestow upon the church. And so I pray that as a result of our time this morning, that you would strengthen us according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, that we would walk out of here with roots just a little deeper than we walked in with. Lord, I pray that if there be any outside the faith, that you would rescue them in by this one and same gospel that strengthens. God, I pray that you would give me a feeling sense of the things that I preach. May it not be that all of my brothers and sisters walk out of here with deeper roots and not me. Spirit of God, we're desperate for you this morning. Would you move in power as we sit with your inspired word in front of us? In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul's letter to the, the church in Rome. It's one of the most theologically rich compositions that have ever been written. Which Paul wrote a, a little later in his life and ministry in order to accomplish a number of things that we don't have time to get into uh, comprehensively this morning, but perhaps uh, most critically, to bring unity to a church divided. See that a lot in the New Testament. A church in this case comprised of both Jewish and non-Jewish people, different ethnic groups and cultures coming together in Jesus Christ. Paul's letter to the church in Rome meant to bring unity where there would otherwise be division and dissension with the hope that a, a unified congregation in Rome could then partner with him in his mission to take the gospel further west to Spain. Prompting Paul to compose arguably the most extensive treatise on the gospel that, that has ever been written, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which Paul ties in, that is the, the gospel, into the, the closing doxology here that we're going to look at this morning in bringing this incredible letter to its conclusion if you look at Romans 16, verses 25 through 27, I'm going to read it in its entirety, this doxology, and, and then we'll dive into it. Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, as I've already mentioned, we looked at a, a benediction, a, a word of blessing one of the most well-known benedictions in all of the Bible. A pronouncement of the blessings of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit upon the church. This morning we look at a doxology, a word of praise, which Paul ascribes to the, the one who is worthy of all praise. To whom be glory forevermore, Paul says. This doxology beginning with a recognition notice of God's might. As Paul declares, now to him who is able to strengthen you. The word strengthen, carrying with it in the original language this idea of being firmly established or solidly planted, like a tree with roots that run deeper and deeper over the course of time so that God's people are not uprooted, Ephesians 4, by every wind of doctrine and human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. This, Paul says, God does in the lives of his redeemed as it's him 
who is able to strengthen us, not we who are able to strengthen ourselves, verse 25. It's him who is able to firmly establish us. It's him who is able to solidly plant and root us. Meaning, and think about this, that God is not like a great many leaders throughout human history. Those having established themselves as strong and rich by keeping those under their power poor and weak. It's not what God does. No, God shows his greatness, the glory of his might by strengthening those who have come under his rule and reign. God's not threatened as he strengthens us. How does he do it? This strengthening work in our lives? Now, according to him who is able to strengthen you, verse 25, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The gospel. From the Greek word euangelion, which is where we get our English word evangelism, meaning good news. The the gospel is not good advice. It's not 10 things for us to do. It's good news. Good news having, Paul says here, at its core and foundation, the person and redemptive work of Jesus Christ, so that there is no gospel, no good news without Jesus. A gospel which I'm compelled to proclaim even now, knowing the dangers of assuming the gospel, which is one step away from abandoning the gospel. As we've articulated it in our core beliefs as a church, The gospel is the good news that while we were dead in our sin and unable to save ourselves, Jesus Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, enabling us to enjoy making much of him forever. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. To be justified by grace alone means that we do absolutely nothing to merit our own acquittal, To be justified by faith alone means that we believe and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone as our means of justification. Jesus took our sin upon himself and in return gifts us his perfect, obedient righteousness. With the heart one believes and is justified. To the one who trusts in Jesus Christ alone, his faith is counted as righteousness. This gospel is also the foundation for our confidence in the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom and the consummation of his purpose for all creation in the new heaven and new earth. This gospel is centered on Christ, is the foundation for the life of the church, and is our only hope for eternal life. This gospel is not proclaimed if Christ's penal, substitutionary death and bodily resurrection are not central to our message. If you came in this morning on the outside of the faith, I would implore you to turn from your sins and to turn to Jesus in trust for the forgiveness that can only be found in him. To receive this good news for yourself. To fall at his feet as king and lord. The gospel, the good news, which Paul understands is surely the power of God to save lost sinners but which he too understands to be the power of God to strengthen his redeemed. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, verse 25, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Who who is the you that Paul is referencing here at the end of Romans? Well, the answer to that question is found at the very beginning of the letter as it is at the very beginning of all of Paul's letters, where Paul makes clear that he's writing not to the lost, but to Christ followers. 
Going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 7 of Romans, Paul says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. He's writing to Christians with an understanding that they haven't graduated beyond their need for the gospel. So that 16 chapters in, Paul would close out this remarkable letter. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, you who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The first half of this remarkable letter, arguably more, is Paul's laying out of the gospel for God's redeemed. As is the case for the first half of most of Paul's letters. If we didn't need the gospel, you just cut out the first half and give us the imperatives. But that's not not what Paul does. He gives us the indicatives, who we are because of Jesus, and then offers us up a hearty therefore in his writings. Paul understands that the gospel not only saves us into God's family, but the gospel also strengthens us as God's family. That the proclaiming of the gospel has a strengthening effect on the Christian, deepening our roots amidst the the winds and waves of circumstance and spiritual attack. Notice what Paul says to Christian brothers and sisters in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Which again is 15 chapters into a writing to the church. Now I would remind you, Paul says, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Paul says, you, you received the gospel? Great. Let me remind you of it. You're standing in the gospel? Great. Let me remind you of it. You're being saved by the gospel even now? Great. Let me remind you of it. Why would Paul say such a thing? It's because Paul knew that the propensity of the human heart is to wander. How tragic, and I think many of you would agree with me on this, the many who view the gospel as the shallow end of the pool, the good news from which we graduate as we move into deeper theological waters. John Piper writes, The heart of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over all his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation but everlasting joy for those who trust in him. He goes on to say, you never, never, never outgrow your need for this gospel. You don't begin the Christian life with this and then leave it behind and get stronger with something else. God strengthens us with the gospel to the day we die. There is no such thing as a Christian who outgrows his or her need for the gospel. There is no such thing as a Christian who outgrows his or her need for the preaching of Jesus Christ. Because our hearts are fickle, we need to be reminded of the gospel often, day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. You know that that feeling of feebleness that comes when you haven't eaten in a while? Get a little weak need. Maybe your hands start to shake a little bit. Such is the church where the centrality of the gospel has been abandoned. Such is the church where the preaching of Jesus Christ has been cast aside for other things. The malnourished church 
leaving her people without the strength that God is both willing and able to supply. The strength which he does indeed supply where the centrality of the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ is found. And now to him who is able to strengthen you, verse 25, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, Paul says, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, verse 26, but has now been disclosed. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. A couple of things for which you and I can ascribe praise to God in these highlighted words of the Apostle Paul's own doxology. For one, that God's plan of redemption in Jesus Christ was not plan B but rather was in the mind of God as God's plan A before the foundation of the world for long ages, verse 25, literally meaning in times eternal. Reiterated through Paul's language in the very next verse, the command of the eternal God. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says elsewhere, God saved us, called us to a holy calling, Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, before times eternal. Or Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on earth will worship it. That is the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. Allow your head to spin for a moment. Before the world as we know it ever existed, God had in view the hanging of the crucified Jesus on an old rugged cross. Before the world as we know it ever existed, God had in view the three days later empty tomb. Before the foundation of of the world, the world as we know it, before it ever existed, God had the names of his redeemed written in the Lamb's book of life. Love before time began. Good news of redemption in Christ before time began. To which Paul says the prophets of old witnessed in their writings. We've talked about this so many times. I'm not going to expound on it as deeply as I have in the past. Simply to say that that God's plan and purpose is unveiled and understood in its fullness in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the many messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. To the glorious substance and reality of all the Old Testament types and shadows. The true temple, the true tabernacle, the greater David, the greater Moses. The greatest prophet, priest, and king. His redemptive work, the hope of salvation, Paul says, for both Jews and Gentiles. The hope of salvation, verse 26, for all nations. The mystery Paul speaks of being God's intention to unite both Jews and Gentiles into one body. It was God's will that it be this way, that people of all nations might come to not only trust Jesus, but to obey Jesus. Which is why Paul uses the language of the obedience of faith. That the gospel strengthens our faith in Christ, which in effect leads to greater obedience to Christ. The obedience of faith, Paul's language here, pushing back on the notion of an easy believism. This idea that I'll trust in Jesus as my Savior and then maybe bow at his feet as Lord at some point down the road. 
This idea that I made a decision for Jesus so I'm good to go. To be sure, our obedience is not the ground or basis of our justification. We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And yet, the faith that justifies changes us. The fruit of obedience, giving evidence to a living faith at its root. In the words of one scholar, justification is by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. You see it even in the book of Romans, the both and. Listen to the language Paul uses to describe the church in Rome. On the one hand, at the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout all the world. Which he bookends in the last chapter of this great letter by saying, For your faith? No, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Right? Paul commends the faith of the saints in Rome and he too commends their obedience. Again, our obedience is not the, the ground or basis of our justification, and yet the faith that justifies works itself out in obedience. Obedience not meaning perfection, but rather a life lived in progressive conformity to the one we follow, King Jesus. Which brings us back to verse 25. This is not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of message. We're talking about a life lived in progressive conformity to Christ, the outworking of the strength that God supplies. And where does God supply that strength? Again, where the centrality of the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ is found. The church has tried to turn into rocket science, which, something which isn't rocket science. Just stay committed to Jesus, the gospel, the word. Isn't God so incredibly glorious and gracious and good? Makes perfect sense, so appropriate that Paul would end this great letter. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Remember, this is a doxology, an ascription of praise to the one who is worthy of all praise. The only wise God, Paul says, meaning not that there are other gods, but rather that God is the only being who is infinitely wise. If I could define wisdom, this is my best stab at it. Wisdom is knowing what the greatest goal and outcome is in any situation at any moment, as well as the best way to accomplish that goal and outcome. That's God without fail over and over and over and over and over and over again. Taking into account the billions upon billions of moment by moment threads that are being weaved together into the tapestry of redemptive history. As Paul says back in chapter 11 of this incredible letter, Oh, the depths of the, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forevermore. Amen. 
Paul couldn't even get to the end of the letter. He had to stop and praise in the middle of it. Think about this. God cannot grow in wisdom because he has been, is now, and forever always will be infinite in wisdom. As John Calvin once wrote, if angels themselves regard the treasures of heavenly wisdom with wonder, then no human being can admire them enough. The Apostle Paul believed in and admired the treasures of God's heavenly wisdom, which helped to sustain him in and through the difficulties and sorrows of life. If our confidence is based on our own ability to establish ourselves, our confidence will wane. But if our confidence is rooted in the the power of him who is able to strengthen us, our confidence will not disappoint. As J. Ligon Duncan once wrote, isn't it interesting that this very praise to God for his power and for his wisdom ends up establishing us in confidence and assurance because when we realize that it is this great and powerful and wise God who is at work in the plan of salvation and who is also at work in our lives, then we don't have to have the answers to all the questions in our lives. We just need to know that the wise and powerful is behind them, working them for our good. Romans 8, again, we don't have to leave this morning's book. He alone is infinitely great. He alone is infinitely strong. He alone is infinitely wise. To our strong and wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Glory from the Greek word doxa. It's where we get the word doxology. Literally meaning a word of glory or an utterance of glory. Glory forevermore, Paul says. A glory that must be admired and treasured for eternity. A glory that God's redeemed will indeed admire and treasure for eternity. As Paul says elsewhere, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For this light momentary affliction, all the pains and sorrows and troubles of this life is preparing for us, he says, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An eternal weight of glory. There's no deeper satisfaction than seeing and savoring the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Meaning that the glory of God is not a means to something greater. It's not a stepping stone to get something better that we want from the genie in a bottle. That basking in the presence of God's glory, that's what we were made for. It's the deepest, most satisfying joy in all of the universe. In the end, we who are in Christ will dwell with God and enjoy the eternal weight of his glory forever. But God's redeemed cannot and must not wait to ascribe glory and praise to the one who's worthy of all praise. Today, today is the day of doxology, as is any and every day in the life of God's redeemed. 
So that I would invite you to behold your infinitely glorious, infinitely strong, infinitely wise God this morning who strengthens his redeemed according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. To him be glory forevermore through Christ. And the church joined the apostle Paul in the close of his letter in saying, amen. So we're going to do that right now. We're going to ascribe praise to him collectively as As you know, we do every week with our song. We get an opportunity to sing to him even now. To bring our sorrows before him. To bring our pain, our deepest hurt before him. To ask him to help us to believe where there is unbelief that he truly is wise to help us to recognize that his power and wisdom is behind our questions, working them for our good. We have an opportunity before we step into the first lyrics to repent of looking for strength elsewhere when God offers it to us, a deeper rooting through the gospel, through the preaching of Jesus Christ. To just continue in that steady diet whether it be in the the organized systems and structures of the church. I hope you see it. I hope you you know, you recognize that the gospel's everywhere in our few ministry environments, that Jesus is everywhere. And that as we scatter into all that free space in between, that we wouldn't abandon the gospel, that we wouldn't abandon Jesus to look for the strength that he supplies, that God so richly supplies as we stay on the gospel path. sing to this God. We'll also have an opportunity to receive of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, I would, I would implore you not to receive of the bread and the cup, but that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for forgiveness, for salvation. If you are a Christian, as many of you know, we take the bread, representing the broken body of Jesus. We dip it in the cup, representing his shed blood. As you prepare to receive of those elements recognize the good news that visually sits right in front of you. He lived your life, which means you don't have to run on a treadmill to try to merit the love of God. He died your death, which means that you can stand before God knowing that the guilt and shame of your sin has been removed and put upon Jesus. He rose from the grave, meaning that there is a power that's big enough to supply your need. There is a strength. It rose Jesus from the dead. The good news doesn't stop there, by the way, with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It continues into his ascension as our great high priest who's speaking better words over you right now than anyone around you ever could. He's your mediator. He turns your your prayers of need into benedictions that he brings before the Father on your behalf even now. That's present tense good news. And there's future good news. He's coming back to set all things right. And, And this light momentary affliction will give way to an eternal weight of glory for his redeemed.
Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.